Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox, and we are uh, going to delve deeper into the Brexit negotiations. We're going to talk about uh, Scotland in particular, which was not for Brexit, but ended up uh, getting included in the whole thing anyway, uh, sort of by accident, given the fact that they're part of the United Kingdom. Um, and Do you know, it- for example, that spending in some areas in uh, Scotland for key uh, government programs could fall by about 20%. There was a new report that talked about the aging of the population and also the rising health care costs. And that means that they're going to need new money, more money for the National Health Service. Uh, this is a study from uh, the Fraser of Allander Institute, and it calls for a real debate about the sustainability of Scotland's budget. And it says that the status quo is not an option. Yeah, well, and also not only that, but Scotland's also been reaching out itself to other countries to try to cultivate relationships and uh, get new trade agreements once Brexit is completed. Here to talk a little bit more about that is Keith Brown, Cabinet Secretary for the Economy, Jobs and Fair Work uh, for the Scottish Parliament, comes to us from Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh, but is here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Uh, Cabinet Secretary, I would love to get your take on what you think the consequences will be to Scotland as these negotiations uh, with respect to Brexit go on. Well, I didn't hear all of the introduction, but I heard the Fraser of Allender should be mentioned, and they estimate around an £8 billion loss and up to 80,000 jobs being lost. But that kind of estimate is mirrored by other economists across the piece, so a very fundamental effect on the Scottish economy. So what we're trying to do is see what we can do to minimise that, and as you've said, making sure that we have bilateral relationships which are improved within the EU, within Canada, which we've been to earlier on this week, and here in the US as well. Minister, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about health care and the National Health Service, because as the name implies, it is a national uh, scheme. How would that fare uh, under any kind of changes that may happen as a result of Brexit for for the Scottish people? Well, of course, there's lots of bilateral relationships within the NHS in terms of medical standards and so on as well, and that could be affected. But Scotland has its own NHS. The National Health Service is a Scottish NHS within um, and separate from the rest of the UK. But you're right to say the agreements on uh, approvals for medicines, um, the agreements for medical practices, uh, bilateral relationships, they could all be affected by Brexit. Uh, and also, crucially, the staff, the people from the EU that currently work in the NHS, we have an issue in getting enough people in as nurses and doctors, we don't want to cut off that supply from some of the most valuable people in our NHS. So taking a step back, can you give us a sense of what proportion of the Scottish population voted in favour for Brexit versus against, and kind of how this development has affected Scotland's relationship uh, with Britain? Uh, Well, of course, we voted differently. So in Scotland, it was 62% voted to remain with the EU. Uh, The polls as recently as this week show that's increased to 67% uh, in terms of support for the EU. We weren't unique in the UK. So London voted to remain. Northern Ireland voted to remain. 
Um, and it's interesting that uh, London and Scotland are both now very cosmopolitan, diverse uh, economies, uh, with lots of people coming from around the world to stay in those locations. And uh, we have, I think, realised in Scotland some of the real benefits that we have from being part of the EU. So we, we are very keen, first of all, to have stayed in the EU. Uh, but now that that uh, seems to be off the table, we want to stay in the single market. You'd like the UK government to stay in the single market as well, um, because there's nothing that's implicit in the vote that we had that said you have to leave the single market. Uh, the EU, yes, but not the single market. But if they don't want to do that, then Scotland wants to stay in the single market. And we've got a trading relationship going back hundreds of years in the Hanseatic League and others. So it's very important to us to stay in the single market. Can you stay in the single market if, say, England leaves? Well, there are different methods by which you can do that. So you have a process or an organisation called EFTA, the European Free Trade Association. They have a relationship in the single market with uh, other European countries. And uh, it's always the case that the EU can find pragmatic solutions. If the EU wants to do that, they need to have a willing partner in the UK to have that as well. And of course, it'd be very attractive. Scotland, if it was an English-speaking country within the single market, it would have a real advantage in terms of investment and so on. So yes, it is possible to do it, but it requires political will. Minister, uh, banking, investment, insurance, asset servicing, these are all key uh, industries uh, for Scotland. If there is no agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union on reciprocity or domicile uh, uh, negotiations having to do with assets and and rules and regulations, will, will Scotland do its own version? It will do as much as we can. So, for example, the First Minister has announced that the Scottish Government will pay for the costs of EU nationals who are forced to go through a process of reapplying to have uh, status within the the EU. So we are trying to find our way around a different process. We've already made the offer to the UK government that we would take a different approach to immigration. We are very keen to... What's their reaction been? I mean, have have they... been pretty much no, um, and there's been no flexibility shown so far. But we're continuing that process. And it's are happened. you surprised by that? I mean, are uh, you surprised that the, that the conversation or even the relationship that they seem to because you're still going to be there, right? I mean, whether you're you know negotiate something separately with the European Union or carve out something within the United Kingdom you're still going to be there and you're still going to be an important factor in the overall economy. Well, that's right. Scotland is not going to have a new neighbour. Our neighbour is England and the rest of the UK, and that's going to remain the case. And we want to keep good relations there. But in relation to the point about immigration, um, that's been the real strength of the UK economy. Population growth has been where that strength has come from. And the people that we've come, had coming in from the EU tend to be younger, younger, productive, skilled. So it's very important that we keep that. And it is possible to have a different system. We had it before under an initiative called the Fresh Talent initiative. So I don't understand why the UK government would just put the the shutters up. Cabinet Secretary, I imagine that you are here in New York uh, as part of your outreach to try to cultivate some of these relationships. Can you give us a sense of who you're meeting with and how you can go about negotiating when you don't have a sense of the moving parts and given Mm. the acrimony uh, right now in England? Well, it's my experience that business will find a way. So, for example, we met with a food distributor um, in New Jersey um, yesterday, uh, very keen to take on uh, products from Scotland. Um, Cheese was 
primary amongst those. But in Canada, we've just seen the reintroduction of haggis uh, to Canada for the first time in 46 years. Um, so we've had meetings to discuss that with uh, retailers and distributors, had meetings with government to make sure that people understand the message that, as you've mentioned, Scotland voted to remain. We are an outward-looking internationalist country. We want to keep and improve business links. So the meetings we've had so far have been with businesses, uh, sometimes some of the banks today here in, in, in Manhattan, and also with uh, food retailers. A huge part of our recent success has been food and drink. Scotch is still a massive uh, you know, selling uh, thing for us. It's one of the biggest products that we have. So that's the nature of the businesses. It's been with businesses and sometimes with government in Canada and in the U.S. Now, as a uh, former Royal Marine, what are your thoughts about uh, military cooperation between Scotland and the United Kingdom that is outside the European Union? It won't even be integrated, perhaps, in the military uh, structure within uh, the, Europe, the Eurozone. Well, it's a very integrated um, a system within the EU. The, the Western Europe, European countries in particular do integrate and they work very well together. I think our biggest issue with the UK uh, defence is the inordinate expenditure, £250 billion or thereabouts, on nuclear submarines, which they don't even really control in any event. So, And that has meant there's been a real downward pressure on spending within the military. There's been a, a huge number of cuts, especially in disproportionate in Scotland. Um, and of course, our European allies look to that. The, the UK has a leadership position in terms of defence in, in the EU, and um, Germany in particular are very concerned about the lack of that influence. But you can't increase that influence by pulling away from working with others, and certainly not by diminishing the armed forces. Thank you so much for joining us. It's truly a pleasure to hear what you have to say. Keith Brown, Cabinet Secretary for the Economy, Jobs and Fair Work for the Scottish Parliament, uh, coming to us from Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, here in our 1130 studios. President Trump is picking a nominee to helm the Federal Reserve as soon as later today. It could come next week, anytime within the next few days. How much does this transition of leadership uh, atop the world's biggest and most important central bank, how important is this? I want to bring in Matthew Freund. He's co-chief investment officer and head of fixed income strategies at Calamos Investments, which oversees about $18 billion of assets and is based in Naperville, Illinois. Uh, Matt, I'd, thank you so much for joining us. How much are you paying attention to this race to be the next Fed chair? Well, we're, we're paying a lot of attention to the race, but we're not changing our strategies uh, depending on who's ahead on any given day. I think when you think about the Fed chair and the transition that's going on there, it really is wide open, even, even today. I mean, the president has... Um, I mean, uh, really proven that he is not bound by tradition or consensus. And uh, I've seen the reports that uh, it seems to be a, uh, a two-man race now between uh, Powell and John Taylor. Uh, but I, I really do. I think it's wide open, and we're not going to be uh, changing our strategies uh, because of it. Well, that's where I wanted to go, Matt, is, uh, you know, as the uh, member of the investment committee, uh, I'm wondering if you could give us some insight into the thinking of you and the other members about how important this selection is and whether you are looking at something else in order to guide your investment decisions. Yeah, well, you know, we we are. So it is important. Let's uh, again, the, the, the Fed uh, did the absolute 
absolute right thing um, post the crisis. So you go back to 2008, um, we had this massive contraction in leverage, and we were all dying for liquidity. So the Fed came in and flooded the – think of a swimming pool. The Fed came in and overfilled the pool. Uh, now the Fed has said, well, we're going to stop filling. They did that a, a year or two ago. Uh, and now they said, look, we're going to be very slowly start taking out uh, a cup at a time, but the levels are still really high. The most important thing in our view is what's going on globally, because while the Fed is slowly draining liquidity, uh, you've got central banks around the world that are coming in and, and with gallons and dwarfing their actions. So when you look at financial conditions, financial conditions are still easing despite Fed tightening. That's very unusual. Well, I, I want to just get your sense, given the fact that there is this sort of flood of cash coming into markets from central banks all over the world. Everything looks pretty expensive right now. There have been concerns raised about lofty uh, valuations in the stock market and certainly in high yield debt markets. Where are you finding opportunity in this kind of highly valued market? You know, that's a great question. So valuations are the most important factor when determining long-term investment returns. I mean, we can't find a better one. So if you're that 10- or 12-year investor, valuations matter. In the short run, they're almost irrelevant. In the short run, the markets are really more uh, trading on momentum, and momentum trades on narratives and how those narratives change. So look at today. Uh, Today we had a budget deal. We rally. Uh, We have tax cuts. We're going to rally. If we have a dovish Fed chair, we're going to rally. Synchronized global growth, we rally. So what are we doing today? We are thinking about the markets in three ways. Your core, uh, your hedges, and your insurance. From the core perspective, Uh, We think that non-U.S. markets, again, this is kind of consensus, but sometimes the consensus is right. We think there's better opportunities overseas, emerging markets and international. Within credit, we do do still like high yield and spread product, not because we think it's going to tighten, but because we think that the carry can go on for a while. Uh, In terms of your hedges, we do think it makes sense to have some high-quality duration, things that go uh, up when the rest of your portfolio goes down. And then lastly, insurance. So when, you, when you're when you buying insurance, you don't hope you're going to get in a car wreck or your house burns down. In the same way, we think having small uh, allocations to things like commodities, precious metals, miners, things that will do really well uh, in a very extreme environment makes sense, but only in very small size. Can you tell us, Matt, what you've been taking profits on, what you've been getting out of because you feel that the valuations have gotten too high and you're not waiting for someone else to take them away from you at an even higher price? Yeah, you know, so that's really hard because we have cash coming in every day. And by selling, we're adding to the the cash problem that uh, that we talked about before. I think that's the quandary of the market. So when we look at sectors that we think are ahead of themselves, they're really things tied to the bond surrogate trade. So I think things like utilities, uh, REITs, those sectors have gotten very, very far ahead of themselves. I think that uh, when you look at the markets, there are some pockets of the markets that are just tra- – the credit markets now, I'm sorry – uh, that are trading tight, especially things uh, in the front end of the curve credit with uh, two or three years to go. Uh, it's really assuming that nothing bad can happen in the meantime. And we're, we're swapping out there, going into 
uh, names that where, where the upside and the downside are a little bit more balanced. And then I guess the last thing that we would say is that we are always focusing on risk. So the nature of risk has changed here. Uh, if you look at over the last five years, anytime you bring up risk, people get mad at you because it just means foregone profits. But we don't think that that's going to continue indefinitely. In fact, it never does. So we're looking at the mar- at, at areas where we're just not being paid for the risks we're taking, and we're lightening up in those areas. Matt, so we do think risk matters. Real, real quick, what is a plausible event or uh, development that could cause uh, this current bull market and risk assets to unravel? Uh, so I'm going to give you a very unsatisfactory answer. Um, I don't know, um, but I guarantee you that after the fact, we're all going to say it's obvious. I mean, we've seen this pattern time and time again. When you have periods of very low volatility, very of tranquility, if you will, investors' bad behaviors sow the seeds of their own demise. And I think that's going to happen again. It could be, it could be uh, that there are no external events, that we have a market correction. I actually suspect it's in the volatility uh, trade part of the market, but I, I can't prove it. Uh, but I think that there's enough unusual things going on there that when we have a normal correction, a uh, normal correction of 5 or 10%, you're going to find out that people or investors are going to realize they have much more leverage in their portfolio than they thought. They're going to take, react, they're going to take actions that are dependent on liquidity, and it's right. not going to be there for them. Thanks very much for being here for us. Matt Freund, Head of Fixed Income Strategies and a member of the Investment Committee at Calamos. Well, as John was talking about, the market is rising today on the narrative that Congress is closer to getting a tax overhaul done. Here to talk about that is Nathan Dean, government analyst and uh, an analyst in financial services for Bloomberg Intelligence. He comes to us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just start by explaining what exactly happened to give such optimism to markets? So last night, the budget approved, I'm sorry, the Senate approved their budget resolution. So they did their part to kick off what's called the reconciliation process. They passed this on a 51 to 49 vote. Senator Rand Paul disagreed. Uh, It was a soft disagree. He actually could have blocked the legislation. He didn't let it go forward. So what we have now is the Senate has passed their resolution. The House has already passed a resolution. Now the House is going to try and actually move the process quicker by adopting the Senate one uh, next week. Uh, So we are going to then see uh, the tax reform process kick off. This is step one, uh, step two maybe of a 50-foot, 50-step process. Uh, So there's still a lot of moving pieces that have to happen before we actually see tax reform. Well, Nathan, maybe you could help me here because uh, I understand that the Senate budget allows for tax cuts. Also, they're cutting, you know, it would cut revenue and the deficit, I believe, would increase to what? One would increase by one and a half trillion dollars over over the next decade. But the House version is revenue neutral. 
So they've got to resolve these two things. Well, so I think what this is, is this is kicking the can so they can debate another day. You know, this is not the final bill. So uh, what the House here is trying to do is they're trying to act quickly. You know, every policymaker on the Republican side, from Steven Mnuchin to Gary Cohn, they're saying we need to get this done by the end of the year. So by having the House adopt the Senate plan next week, they're going to shave off probably about three weeks of debate time so they they can just speed up the process. Hang hang on, hang on. So, for example, is is Kevin Brady, the the representative from... the congressman from Texas, the Republican uh, from Texas, is is he on board with this? So it, from a process standpoint, but to your original point, you know, there are a sizable amount of Republicans in the House that will not, you know, that are not comfortable with raising the deficit. And so this is literally just a plan so that we can debate. And the thing here is, is that, you know, a lot of people are very optimistic about tax reform and the Republicans have agreed on a plan. They have a nine page plan. The tax code is 70,000 pages. We haven't seen legislation yet. You know, the House and the Senate, the, the House and Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee, both of them have said that we would like to put out legislation, draft legislation by early November. The House could put something out here that says, right, we're not going to increase the deficit. The Senate could put out and say, we're going to increase the deficit by $1.5 trillion. You know, that is where the fight is going to happen. And the challenge with, uh, you know, what the Republicans are facing is, you know, you know, in the Obamacare fight, it was mostly in the Senate. The House passed their resolution and went to the Senate. That's where the fight was. In tax reform, you're going to have a fight in the Senate. You're going to have a fight in the House. Uh, and you're going to have to deal with all these moving parts. And that's part of the reason why we don't think uh, in our analysis that tax reform is going to happen this year. Nathan, uh, is this completely being driven by the GOP or are there some Democrats that are also on board? So you, you see a little bit of Democratic support from senators in, in red states. You know, there was during what's called the Voterama, there were several amendments yesterday where uh, a few senators jumped over and joined the Republican Party. But this is pretty much a Republican only effort. We don't see uh, really a bipartisan process playing out here, uh, partly just because it's, it's extremely tricky. Uh, you know, the Democratic senators would have to go up against uh, uh, Senate, their own Senate leadership. And so uh, I, I think uh, I think it's just going to be a GOP uh, play for now. What about uh, congressmen from and women from states that would be affected by the removal of the state deduction? Are they expected to put up a fight even if they are Republicans? You know, I think they're going to have to. The answer is yes, if they think that the middle class is going to be harmed. You know, this goes back to this, uh, you know, they have a nine page framework. They have three buckets, and Speaker Paul Ryan is saying that they're going to add a fourth bucket uh, for the highest earners. You know, by doing away with the SALT deductions, you know, are, are they going to be harmed? Are they going to be helped? And I think right now policymakers just don't, under, don't understand what's about to happen, or at least they just don't understand the plan because no plan exists yet. So when the legislation comes out, that's when you're going to see policymakers actually begin to deep, uh, you know, dive into the details, see what's going to happen to their constituents. And if they think their constituents are going to be harmed, especially the middle and lower class, they are going to rebel. Is, is 22 a magic number for House Speaker Paul Ryan? I mean, because he can't. How many Republicans can he actually lose as this goes to the House floor? It, it, it's about that. I mean, it's and. You know, I don't think I think the challenge will be on the Senate side. Uh, I don't think the challenge will be on the House side, per se, Um, you know, because what our take is, is that, you know, tax reform is just something that's very complex. It's probably not going to happen. 
Uh, a tax cut, uh, on the other hand, is more likely. And so as we go through this process and we get to the end of the year, and if something, if nothing happens, we're going to start getting into the 2018 election campaign seasons. And that is when the Republicans want to say, especially by April 15th, because you can imagine if we get the tax day and nothing has happened, there's going to be a lot of bad press about that. So as we get closer into the 1Q of next year, I think you're going to see ambitions scale down. They're going to start talking about, right, we just need to pass something. Maybe it's a corporate tax cut, you know, something like that. Let's get that through, get a good message as we go into the 2018 election cycle, and then, you know, see where we go from there. Thanks very much. Nathan Dean is our government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's going to be busy for a long time covering tax cuts and perhaps tax reform. Well, we have been talking a lot this week about automation on Wall Street and how a lot of big banks are looking to, uh, frankly, use computers for as much of their businesses as possible. And uh, there's one area that might be a little bit more complicated when it comes to doing that, and it is trading. Here to talk about that is Sejal Kishan. She's a hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg News uh, and joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. You wrote uh, an article today. It was a fabulous piece, uh, one in a three-part series about automation on Wall Street. Um, Can you just talk about what some of the biggest challenges are when it comes to replicating a trader in a computer? <laughs> there are many challenges. Um, the worst thing, I guess, or the big the big issue is that a lot of uh, a lot of Wall Street is still using old mainframe computers, very dated de- technology. Um, and so sort of like trying to like um, sort of introduce new uh, machine learning technologies on these old mainframe computers is a huge challenge. Um, and then you've got a lot of banks and hedge funds, they're still using like Excel spreadsheets, so many different trading platforms, um, and data that's served on different servers that are not talking to each other. And for AI to work, you need the, the data in one place so that it can then go through and find patterns and relationships. Uh, I want to ask about this idea, maybe this idea that you can automate tasks, but it is more challenging to automate decision making. And perhaps you can sort of uh, use the story of uh, Paul Tudor Jones that you have in your story just to kind of give us an anecdote that explains technology is great, but it can't do everything. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, you know, you can program a computer to buy or sell gold if the, you know, there's a Fed announcement or stocks are at a certain level or there's like political strife somewhere. But you can't really program, at least not at the moment, things like gut instinct and having that sort of trade conviction. Like, you know, you if you're bullish, there's bullish and then being really bullish, like shooting, going in for the kill. And that's something that it's a little bit harder to, to introduce. Well, but hold on a second, because I uh, when I talk to people, they seem to say that about credit. Or less liquid assets, things that aren't traded as frequently, that aren't uh, as computerized yet. When it comes to stocks, how much of that instinct is really left? <laughs> I mean, aren't we just dealing with a whole bunch of algos out there? Well, I think it's something like 90% of um, equity trading is pretty much done electronically now. So, um, and then I think there's that famous stat about Goldman Sachs's uh, equity trading business. Like, I think they only have like, 30 people or something like that um you know down from like hundreds back in the day um but yeah as you mentioned and as you used to cover yourself the the credit markets are are the ones that are going to be uh, challenging to to automate 
I'm compelled, though, by the idea that uh, a lot of the programming might even be there, but the big banks don't have the actual hardware. They don't have the computers that are capable of doing this. Aren't they spending billions upon billions of dollars every year on technology? Uh, and how much more would they have to spend in order to, like, uh, you know, get all new equipment that would be equipped to do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. They, they are spending, as you rightly said, billions on, on technology, but they, you also have to get the right techno, uh, techies, the, the coders, the engineers and scientists. And at the moment, they all want to go to Silicon Valley. I mean, that's where they're like this, the stars there. You know, they want to work for Facebook and Netflix and... Well, but so here's here's the sort of ironic thing. Back in maybe 10, 20 years ago, when you went to a great school, everybody wanted to go work for Wall Street because they got paid the most. Now they all want to go work in Silicon Valley because they get paid the most. Can't banks just have fewer of them and pay them incredible salaries? Do they pay them huge amounts or are they trying to sort of treat them as back office textile? Well, that's the that that that's the issue. I mean, you know, you can be at Facebook and you're like, you know, the front office star, so to speak. But going to um, to to Wall Street, you're still sort of like considered as the the tech support guy, as you quite rightly said. But also, like being in a in a in a tech firm, you've got that sort of collegial camaraderie. Sort of everyone's like thinking and talking your language. And going to Wall Street. People, if you speak, talk, talk about, you know, um, statistical inference or any like deep learning strategy uh, management, I just got to look quite blankly at you. Maybe not at Goldman Sachs with Marty Chavez, but. What about using all of this technology inside the firm, not necessarily to make money uh, as trading and so on, but uh, just to automate or to try to use uh, artificial intelligence for things like fraud detection or, uh, you know, breaking the international banking rules? Uh, is that something that the banks are, uh, and the people that you've spoken to feel is going to be sort of pervasive? Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, uh, yeah, they, they call that... Um Reg tech, that's the yeah, the equivalent of fintech. Um, yeah, no, um, my colleague um, Hugh Son wrote a couple of months ago about how JP Morgan, they um, have uh, automated some of the legal work that, that uh, is done at the bank and uh, that would take you know, teams of lawyers hundreds of hours, months to do, and they're doing it now in seconds. With the traders that you spoke to, were they nervous about job security? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. There's this... Um, the all the stories that we've done all year, um, you know, investing and the finance team, it's really hitting a nerve amongst our readers and uh, subscribers and, and listeners. Um, it's an existential crisis because we're so used to talking about blue collar workers, like factory workers, coal miners, like being laid off and, and you know, people, I guess, on the, in, on, on the coast are like, well, you just retool, retrain. But now it's like climbing up sort of the, the pecking order and it's affecting them now. Well, we're going to see how many of them uh, survive this. Is it going to be a battle between the machines and the human beings, at least to keep those jobs? Yeah. yeah. Cyborg battle. Cyborg <laughs> battle. Back, go, All go right. Watch Doctor Who. Scary. All right. Well done. Thank you very much uh, for being with us, uh, Sejil. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, Sejil Kishan, hedge fund reporter uh, for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.